0: Well this morning what we're gonna do is is uh take a look at the commitments um that Antioch has. And for some of you this will be just a fresh look at something you've heard before. For others of you this will be just the first time you've heard any of this. And so uh we're gonna dive into it. It's part of our series called Move. And like I said last week, I think some things are designed to have momentum or movement if they're gonna work. It's like a bike. It has to have Forward momentum and speed if it 's going to balance itself out, and so we use the word commitments kind of for that same reason because everywhere i 've ever been it 's always talking about values, and I must have about you know ten thousand values. you know I value a good cheeseburger um, it 's not that big of a deal i 'm not committed to it, and so instead of calling these things values and they 're lost in the shuffle with everything else we value in our life, these are commitments which means they've got speed and momentum and force and power behind them. They drive us. And so uh, it's a big thing. It's a big word. And so the first one just has to do with Christ, because if something's going to drive us, if something's going to move us, we're called Christians for a reason, and, and so it has to do with Christ. And so last week I shared a verse with you, and if you turn to Acts chapter 2, we'll read it again. Acts chapter 2, and it was the beginning of Paul's... Uh, Our Peter's first message to a group of people that would become the first Christians. And so on the day of Pentecost, Paul uh, Peter, again, sorry, is addressing a large group of people, and these people are going to form the first Christian community. And he says this in verse 36 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Everything revolves around him. He's at the center. He's the focal point. And so Jesus, in his own mystery, talked about the scriptures and that all of the scriptures pointed to him. And it's a fascinating study. And if you've ever read the whole Old Testament, you'll have, you'll have notice this, that there's so many symbolic things that just jump out and foreshadow Christ it 's starting in genesis it 's looking ahead, and then with Abraham, uh, the whole idea of God providing a sacrifice, and then the whole idea of the Passover Lamb, and then on into the prophets and the expectation of a king that this would all be able to kind of look towards and revolve around, and all the way on up to to christ 's coming, Jesus says all those scriptures point to me, and then obviously the the New Testament is all written because of jesus 's life and his teachings and it all points back to him so if you picture a big bow tie uh, with a knot in the middle so here's a bow tie that comes down to a knot and then it goes out all that predated jesus kind of pointed to him and kind of focused in on him brought us to the life of christ and then everything since jesus really comes out of that and so christ is really at the center and there's a C.S. Lewis quote that I love and I, I never get tired of reading. And I'm going to read it for you at length. And there's a short version, a long version. Here's the long version. And C.S. Lewis writes this in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes, may I come back to what I said before, this whole notion of Christianity. There's nothing else. It is so easy to get muddled about that. It is easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects, education, building, missions, holiday services, And just as it is easy to think that the state has a lot of different objects, military, political, economic, and whatnot. But in the way, things are much simpler than that. The state exists simply to promote and to protect the ordinary happiness of human beings in this life. A husband and a wife chatting over a fire. A couple of friends having a game of darts in a pub. Uh, British people can get away with saying things like "pub." Um, a man reading a book in his own room or digging in his own garden. That is what the state is there for. And unless they are helping to increase and prolong and protect such moments, all laws, parliaments, armies, courts, police, economics, etc., are simply a waste of time. Now here's the, the kicker, okay? So focusing on on this with me. Here's the analogy. In the same way, The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ's. If they are not doing that, then all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. We're not here just passing time in services. We're not doing good deeds just to do good deeds. We are standing in in a relationship with God that's supposed to help us grow and mature and develop into little Christ. We're palm trees. And our roots are going to help us grow into Christ-likeness. And that's at the center of this whole thing. And so the first value here is Christ-centered. And, and I um, I think that, i just put it this way, I, I think we get it all wrong. And I think the church has followed culture. And what we've done is, is what I've called dog theology, which is we've made Christianity about us, and God is a dog, like a, a golden retriever, That's going to go catch a ball when we throw it and he's going to bark when there's danger and he's going to keep us company when we need company Uh, but God is a dog that's there for our needs and he runs around us and the truth of the matter is the world cannot Christianity cannot work with that paradigm with that worldview God is at the center, Christ is at the center, and we revolve around him. And that's why Jesus made it so tough at the front end when he asked people to come to him. Because you have to die to yourself, say, it's not about me, the world doesn't revolve around Ken anymore. I'm going to make my life about Christ and revolve around that. It's a complete and radical change in my basic orientation so even the word repentance in, in the new testament there the idea is repent and be baptized repentance means i'm walking this way and i have a complete about face and i go this way it's 180 degrees out of phase and so our self-centeredness has taken us this way and then here comes our god-centeredness our christ-centeredness it is radical and it is absolute and it's a must if we're going to get this whole thing called christianity and so churches these days, and, and I wasn't going to talk about other churches, but I'm going to, okay, uh, are, are locked into this paradigm where people, it, it's like the church is Walmart and the customer is always right. And so customers come in and saying, how can I get God to fetch what I want him to fetch and do for me what I want him to do? Because it all revolves around me. My life's a mess and I want it pretty by 10 o'clock today. Give me give me what I need. And so the church tries desperately to throw principles and you know stuff that you can use on Monday, and it's not about using. It's about our complete orientation that it's Christ at the center and not us. And if we don't understand that, then we're not going to really care about truth. We're not going to care about knowledge and we're not going to care about really digging into these things and and getting excited about who Jesus was because at the end of the day, it's not just about whether there's some things that work for us. It's about whether Christ really existed, really rose from the dead, and if we're grounded in this whole faith venture where we're making our life all the way about Christ. And so Paul says, you know what, i got to explain something to you and to the Corinthian church If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then I'm an idiot. I'm a fool for making my life all about something else if that thing isn't really worth me making my life about it, if it's not true. And so in some sense, we become fools for Christ. And that was originally the name. Um, The Christians were, were first called that. They were first called Christians at Antioch, the followers of Jesus. And it was a term of derision. And so this church is named Antioch. I think it's kind of funny. And we've got to learn what it means to be called a Christian. So the first thing is just to be Christ-centered. We're committed to that. There's no other way around it. Second thing is authentic spirituality. Authentic spirituality. And so turn to Matthew chapter 12 with me. Matthew chapter 12. And this is one of those classic like Jesus versus the Pharisee moments. Matthew chapter 12, and uh, Jesus is, is kind of uh, helping them understand that their religious observance of the Sabbath maybe isn't the be-all, end-all that they think it is. And so picking it up and, and uh, let's see what verse we want to grab. In verse 9, we'll, we'll start in uh, chapter 12, verse 9. So going on from that place, Jesus went into a synagogue, And a man with a shriveled hand was there, and looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So do you understand what's going on? They're in church, and there's guys that don't really get the whole God thing because it's all about them, and they're upset that Jesus has come around because he's getting a lot of attention. It's hurting their ego and their pride, and so they're trying to kind of Get them to do something that doesn't fit with the expectations that churchgoers would have so that they can label them and paint them a certain way and then kick them out you know, or tell people, you see, this guy's a heretic. So that's what's going on, right? And so they ask him this question, hoping that Jesus kind of fall into their trap. And they say, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? Because in, in their customs, it wasn't okay to heal on the Sabbath or do any work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says this, if any of you has a sheep, And it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Let me read that again. How much more valuable is a man or a woman than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus appeals to common sense. Look, if you're walking down the road and you're you're walking your little sheep on a leash and he trips and falls in a pit... You're going to reach down and pick them up and pull them out of the pit, right? It's common sense. Aren't you going to do that? And, and they got to say yes. And Jesus is saying, so if you're kind of walking along and a human being is, is tripped up and falling into a pit, something's wrong with them. Why wouldn't you reach down and help that person? How in the world could your rules and regulations and customs be good if they forbid doing good to man? How can customs be more important than people? And so Jesus is appealing to motive and not methodology. These guys were so wrapped up in being right. so all these rules and lines in the sand and, and they're like walking these tightropes. If you ever saw the movie First Night where Richard Gere goes through that like, um, gauntlet, that's the picture that just came to my mind. Uh, he's all crazy and they're tiptoeing and, and ducking and diving and, cause they got all these rules and regulations that they don't even see people in need and realize that that's more important. And and they missed something really huge here, and I'll just throw it in. The line between good and bad isn't out there. It's not political. I don't care what the elections do next year. The line between good and bad runs right down the middle of every human being's heart. Bad is not out there, and I'm good. The idea with good and bad is I am good and I am bad. And when we get it wrong and we think it's all about factions and being right and pride and politics and posturing, then we don't see ourselves rightly. We get proud. We think we're perfect. And we don't see other people rightly. They're just like us and they need grace. And so these other guys were appealing to method and Jesus is appealing to motive and they had it all wrong and Jesus had it all right. And the idea was authentic spirituality. Authentic spirituality, that spirituality doesn't come from weird ritualistic observances and missing the heart of, of what God would have us do, which is love other people. And so the early church in Antioch, we've talked about it before, had this interesting dynamic of it's a community with Jews that have now reached out to non-Jews, to Greeks, and they're supposed to be a body, like a one family. But Jewish customs forbid them to eat with non-Jews. wasn't kosher. So what do they do? Well, they, they choose people over the customs. Grace triumphs over the law. Grace is bigger than the law. There is no law against grace. It's amazing when you read in... 1 Corinthians 13, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard it. It's the whole big love, love is patient, love is kind, that whole love passage. And then it ends with, there is no law against such things. There's never a time when there's a law out there that is higher than love. Does that make sense? There is no law against such things. You can never be wrong if you love people, if you have love in your heart. It is never wrong. That's the embodiment of Jesus' life and what he did. It is never wrong. And so it's authentic to say, here's a person. Let me have a grace on them. Forget the religion. And so like I was trying to tell Tamara, I was like, I just, just, this eats me up inside that we've got to get this. So I was telling Tamara, I was like, Tamara, I've got to express this so strongly so that people really get what I'm saying. I was like, how do I do that, Tamara? And she just looked at me and she says, well, just make sure you don't accidentally cuss, <laughs> so I won't do that. Um, but it's just so huge that we get this idea that we should be authentic in our spirituality. It's not about being religious. It's not about legalism. I had a professor in seminary, God bless his soul, that was teaching people. Now, when you're preaching, open your Bible and read the passage, and then while people are turning, you use that time to stare at the people that didn't bring their Bible to church. So while everyone's turning, it's a good minute or two to look down and maybe even move your glasses down and stare at the people who didn't bring their Bible to church so that they'll take that as a warning and they'll start to learn to bring their Bible to church. I think the guy is just dead wrong. Charles Manson could bring a Bible to church and it means nothing. That is nothing. And we got to understand what's authentic and what's real, not what's religious. So Kim, we were talking this week, and she reminded me something I used to always say when we first began Antioch. When we first began Antioch, I was really obsessed with this idea that um, there needed to be a church where normal people could go to. I just, I don't know. I felt like there's just a lot of weird Christians out there. And that, a lot of weird churches, and there just needed to be a place where people could go that was normal. Um and I'm not saying that um, all your aunts and uncles and whatnot um, are weird that are Christians,'m just saying maybe a lot of them are <laughs> um, and so here's what I mean by like you know here's an example of weird christian i've got this book when we were starting the church i I love free stuff, so if I ever have a chance to get free stuff i'll take it i'll walk into stores, ask for samples, all that kind of stuff um, I'm really big on free stuff, and so we were uh we wrote. A bunch of Christian publishers before the church launched, and we we're like, hey, we're a church plant, we're really poor, but we like the life of the mind. You want to send us a bunch of free books? And they did. It was kind of cool. Uh so we got boxes and boxes of books, and this one publisher sent us boxes of books, and there's a stack of this book, and it's called Body Prayer. Okay? And so it's a book on body positions to that you can take while you're praying um, to help out. So here's a prayer for mercy. There you go, mouth open. So um, that's the body position for, for mercy. So if you want mercy from God, then you need to have mouth open. Here's my favorite one. Um, it's a prayer for willingness. And the rag doll bends. So if you hang yourself over like that, arms dangling, loose, it'll tell you how to do it. That's a prayer for willingness. Um, there's some other funny ones. There's a prayer for the rhythm of God. Which is kind of like that lunge position, um, maybe someone could come up here and, and illustrate for everyone, but so this is body prayer, okay? this is weird it 's just weird i don 't know anyone that i 've been friends with in my life that I could go to him and say, This is spirituality. Come to my church, you know and Brandon Reynolds and I were kind of joking around, and we were thinking, you know if you started praying really fast, it could be like a, a Christian workout, you know Fred could do it at body fit. Uh, And you could could burn a lot of calories praying, um, but you'd still be weird, you know. And so here's the point. Let's not be weird. Let's love people. It's never wrong and it's never weird. Let's be authentic and maybe just maybe we'll, we'll show people something that Jesus showed them, that it's down to earth, it's about love and it's about a relationship with God and with other people. And that leads us to the next one inclusive community. It's interesting, I was talking to a new friend of mine named Dan Brosy, who's back for a couple of years. Uh, he's a world relief missionary in uh, Central Africa. And so he's back for a couple of years and, and he's came to Antioch and uh, he's coming to Antioch. And we were at a dinner this week and someone was asking him, so what's wrong with the American church? And they kept, you know, pinging on him and all this other stuff. And he says, well, I'll tell you what's good with the African church Oh, what's that? And and it was community. It was this, they have no money. They, they have a lot of weird things going on, a lot of struggles that they have to deal with. They have an incredible need for education over there in Africa, the churches. But they have an amazing community. And I think we've lost that because it's this whole self-centered thing again, right? Church is about me going in as a customer. I don't care about the other customers. I just care that I get what I, I want, and when we talk about community, it's like, oh, yeah, it's a good thing. Community, I'm all for it. But are you committed to it? Are you moving with community such that the bike actually can can ride? It doesn't just fall over. Is there enough momentum there? And, and so this idea of inclusive community, i mean, to try and illustrate it a couple different ways, but um, it's about togetherness. I, I heard someone talking about a men's retreat last weekend where, Donald Miller, and our book for the fall, if you haven't seen it, is Blue Like Jazz. It's Donald Miller's book. We've got it on the book table. But he got up and he said in the early part of Genesis, something I thought was really creative, but he took all these pastors and men and churchgoers and he says, what is the big idea of the first couple chapters of Genesis? What is that rock bottom? What's What's the big idea? And they're all throwing out the theological answers. And then Donald Miller says, it's nakedness. So the big idea is nakedness. Before they sinned, they were naked and felt no shame. There was there was the ability to be connected and be in relationship. And after sin came into the world, all of a sudden there was clothes and masks and hiding that came in. And man was disconnected from God and disconnected from each other. And so I love that phrase. It's all about nakedness. I think I'd go deeper, though, and say the first couple chapters really is about... um Connectedness. And then separateness. This idea of am I all alone or am I with others and am I with God? And and nakedness is an illustration or the symbol of whether I'm at a point where I'm able to be with God or with others or cut off or separate. And the idea here really is we were created for unity. And so when Jesus prays in John 17... Everything is headed towards unity. That's where we're going. Community is where we're headed. Get used to it. When we get to heaven, we are going to be in one big lump of community. And so we're going to begin to live that out now. As we're becoming a little Christ, we learn what it means to be in family and to be in community. And the first thing about it is, is it takes initiation. You have to initiate to be in community. It takes work. It takes effort. I I love thinking of high school because it's a great um, it's a great paradigm in in my mind is it's just uh, you have the in crowd and the out crowd and the in crowd always um, stiff arms the out crowd we don't need you we got everything we, we want right here and it's you know you'd mess up the seat numbers in the cars if you came we'd need another car or something or or you're awkward, or you look funny, or you don't dress like us, and we just don't need you, and you stiff arm it. And so everyone that's not in the in crowd wants to be in the in crowd. It's got a magnetic pull to it. And everyone in the in crowd is exclusive. And the idea, I think, of the Christian community is we've got a different set of values other than what people wear, what they dress, whether they're cool or not, and how many car seats we need to get to the mall or whatever. We've got different priorities, and so we're inclusive. And so we have love and we're we're sharing everything in common and it's this wonderful family that we get to be a part of and it's going to be magnetic and people are going to hear about what community can be like in Bend or Central Oregon or in your family or in your neighborhood and and they're going to want to be a part of that. It's magnetic. It draws people. Instead of stiff-arming them and being exclusive, we turn that hand around and wave them in and say, sure, Come along. Somebody reached out to me and they took the time and the effort. And I might have been awkward at first and nobody knew me. um, But they did that for me. I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to put that work into it. I'm going to initiate with you. And I think that, you know, this is the Antioch church in the book of Acts is really where we got our name. So if you look at chapter 11 in Acts, chapter 11, we'll see kind of how the, the church at Antioch did this. Chapter 11 in Acts. And we'll begin reading in verse 19. And if you remember, just a a little bit before this, there was a persecution. Uh, Stephen got stoned, and and it became kind of a a difficult thing to be a Christian because people were gunning for you. And so people kind of scattered, and so verse 19 begins with this. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, Telling the message only to Jews, they're being exclusive. You hear that? Telling the me- it's right there in Scripture. Telling the message only to Jews, but some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch, and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. That's the example. It's not saying I'm only going to think of myself in my own little circle, my own little crowd, but I'm just going to take the message out there and I'm going to reach out to people and bring them in and let them be a part of my community, even though in high school they might have been in the out crowd. I'm going to work towards it. There's going to be momentum there and movement there, and it's going to be inclusive. That's not a political statement. okay? That's a statement of grace, and it's a statement of love. Inclusive community. Uh, I love what G.K. Chesterton says. And he's talking about Americans here. Uh, He was a British writer back in the early 1900s. And he says this, the eagle has no liberty. He has only loneliness. So we take pride in what in America? Image. We take pride in image, our nobility, our, our sense of stature, our sense of influence, our Who we are as people look towards us. It's all about us and how we dress ourselves up. We're eagles. We take so much pride in that, and then we go home and we lay in bed and we stare at the ceiling and we're miserable. Absolutely depressed and hollow and empty inside because we are so ridiculously alone. The eagle has no liberty, he's not free, he has only loneliness. And so I I think back to the best times I've ever had in terms of community. It would be on, I think of a trip we took to San Francisco. It It was doing a college group, and we took kind of a missions trip type deal to San Francisco. And this whole ragtag group of people doled out more hugs to each other that week than they probably had hugged anyone in like you know four years or something like that. People got more hugs than they maybe had gotten their whole life. And it wasn't something we like officially set up. It was just we were in a strange place living in a homeless shelter in San Francisco with people that had AIDS and living on the floor. And, and it was breaking us down, and we were there together, and there's this sense of community in it. We didn't want to criticize each other. I mean, it wasn't like put-downs and cut-downs and, and let me pick on this person, and it's okay if Guy Gleason does it. Okay, Um, he's been given permission by the elders, just in case you didn't know. Um, But in that kind of a, you know, high school sense, college sense, it it wasn't that. Nobody had a desire to gossip. Nobody had a desire to slander. They just wanted to be loved and to love, and and it just came out in the way of hugs. And I know for a fact that if you got 20 or 30 hugs today, you would go to bed tonight happier than you've, you've gone to bed in the last year. And I don't care what happens in the stock market. I don't care what the weather's like. If you got 20 or 30 hugs today, you would go to bed tonight fed and satisfied, connected. That's what we were made for. So inclusive community, that's what we're committed to at Antioch. Uh, we'll just head on down to the last one here, and, and that's to be missional. If you turn to Acts 1 8 with me. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1 8, and it's actually Christ. A few of the, the words at the beginning of Acts are from Christ as, as he kind of picks the, the story up before Christ left. And so, Acts 1 8, we have Jesus saying to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. We talked about that last week. And this is how he finishes that sentence. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You're going to be witnesses here at home in the backyard, which is both Judea and Samaria, the backyard that they had an affinity with, the backyard that was awkward for them. It's still the backyard. And then abroad in in all the nations. And so those three spheres at home and in the backyard and abroad, you're going to go to those spheres and be my witnesses. It's about those people, and you're going to go and be my witnesses in all three of those spheres. So the interesting thing for me here is um, the church is a tool. It doesn't just exist for me to meet my needs and to give me some self-help principles and to scratch me where I itch. It is a highly developed tool that is going to help band people together and help get the word out unto the nations, And so a lot of you are feeling like, you know what, I'm not a leader. Only influential people can change the world, and I'm not a leader. I had a charisma bypass when I was young, um, and I can't really do anything. Well, God saw fit to put you into a body. It's not about one person, any one person. It's about all of us coming together in this body and being a highly developed organism or tool for carrying God's purposes under the world. It's not focused inward, it's focused outward. And so here's my biggest frustration with the church. We took something that was really good, and we got it all messed up. Um, And that's the purposes of the church. So there's a a purpose-driven church and purpose-driven life. And Rick Warren did a great job of articulating what the purposes are. I don't think the problem is with him at all. The purpose is about fellowship, having a family. It's about spiritual growth and becoming mature. It's about um, my, my gifts and serving and giving out and ministering. It's about missions and sharing and being witnesses and going. And it's about worship. Those five purposes are what the church is about. But here's what we've done. We've taken those five purposes, run them through our kind of self-centered grid that it's all about me. And so here's how that goes now. Um, I like to worship this way. It's my complete style. It's all about me. This is how it's it's got to be. Um, this is what I enjoy. And I'm going to run around town until I find that. It's about me um, finding fellowship and about me finding that one or two person that I want because it's about me being satisfied that way. It's about me find and it's about me growing because, uh, uh, yeah, about me finding that community. It's about me growing and becoming better and bigger. And um, all the more for you to look at, right? And then it's about me finding out my spiritual gifts so I can be self-actualized. Because I only develop meaning as I give. And so it's about me finding who I am so that I can be fulfilled in serving. And then lastly, well, heck, missions. It's about others. There's really no way of getting around about it. But I'm doing four out of five and so that's kind of how we go. And also, that's pretty good. So that's why most every church is struggling with how in the world do we get people to do missions or evangelism or reach out? And the reason they won't, they won't do that is because they're figuring four out of five—that's an, you know, what, an eighty percent? It's a passing grade on a test. You know, it's a B. I'm a good Christian. I don't have to do that last one. So all these churches are like, how in the world do we get people to do this last one? And they can't get people to do it because it's about others and it's not about themselves. And so if we just take the five purposes, which, again, are the purpose of the church, but we put that first piece in there that Jesus taught us, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, then you'll gain it. Okay. So if I take myself out of the equation and I put the right focus on it's not about me, it's about others. It's about loving God and loving others. I'm going to be missional. I'm going to be focused and purposeful. Now let's look at it. Worship is about God, not about me. God is the object of worship, not my own emotions or feelings. Fellowship isn't about me. When was the last time you went up to someone and stuck out your hand and said, glad to meet me? You know, you don't do that. It's about us and togetherness and we. If one person says it's all about me, that ends community right there. Because there can be no give and take or win-win because it's only as it meets my needs will I play. Otherwise, I'm going to take my marbles and go. Spiritual growth, here's the crazy thing. There's only one way to grow spiritually. After 12 years, I've brought it back to one. You want to grow spiritually? Here's one thing. Give. You only grow as you give. It's like the Dead Sea Principle. If there's inlet, God's grace in your life, and there's no outlet, it is going to be dead. If you're just a spiritual glutton and you're just taking it in, but there's no exercise to take those calories or whatever else, turning it, turning it into something productive... Um, you're not going to grow. If you're not getting your hands dirty with the people that need to be loved, your heart isn't going to be shaped so that you realize it's not all about me. Other people have issues too. You only grow as you give. It's about others. And then serving. You know, we can talk. Sure, there's going to be joy that comes from finding your niche and serving in your area. Sure. Of course. But the object of me serving isn't me. The object of me serving is obeying Jesus who said, no servant is above his master, and I serve, so you do likewise. It's obedience. It's a love for other people. If I really care for them, what am I going to do? Bend myself over backwards to meet their practical, physical, material, spiritual, whatever needs. Not just on on Monday for two hours when it's going to make me feel like I'm self-actualized because I'm using my gifts. Service isn't something we do. Being a servant is something we are or aren't. And service is love in working clothes. It's love in working clothes. And we've got it all wrong about um, this idea of just take a slice and go give so that you feel better about yourself. We're supposed to be servants so that we see every little thing even when it's inconvenient. Just like the good Samaritan on the road seeing the guy all beat up and it's not convenient, but he stops because he's the right kind of person. That's what we're supposed to be. It's about others. And then obviously missions, this is that fifth one that nobody did. When we get the other ones right that it's about others, now all of a sudden this one that we never wanted to do, because it was the only one that really required us to be focused on others, this one now becomes the joy of our life. We're so, we're like focused on others and doing so much that pretty soon we say, can't there be a strategy so that this really has some feet to it and makes a difference in culture and in our church and in our, our society and in the world? Can't we really work towards that? Cause that's what I'm all about is others and the big issues. And so we care about missions and it, it fires us up and we want to do it. We cannot not do it. It gives us our purpose for being. And so when we get the whole paradigm right, we, we barrel into missions, and we've got so much speed now when we hit missions that we just have to. It's an expression of what's in there and, and the fire in our belly, and we've got to do it, and we have the right perspective. Because here's the wrong perspective. We have a bad theology of poverty in the church. We have a bad theology of poverty because we think it's all about us. So when, then we look at AIDS, and we look at... Um, world hunger, and we look at poverty, and we go, wow, that's horrible. Let's go stamp it out. Let's be the generation that eradicates it. Let's get rid of it. Why? Because I want to be meaningful and significant. And we never really factor in God, because remember, God's not what it revolves around. It revolves around me. And we run off headlong and stupid thinking that we can eradicate poverty. And we can't. We can't. Jesus said, you will always have the poor with you. It's not for us to eradicate poverty. That's not the end goal. It's not even the driving motivation. A correct theology of poverty says we do this because grace begets grace and love begets love. And when we understand our relationship with God, we want to help those people in need, whether we can completely eradicate poverty or not. Whether we get credit for being the generation or the nonprofit or the group or the church that solved all the riddles or not, it's not about that. And we do it because we know in doing it, we're going to become the right kind of people, little Christ. Our roots are going to grow up and turn us into the right kind of people. And so a correct theology of poverty isn't centered around myself. And and what I can do using my American know-how, ingenuity, influence, wealth, everything else, um, we look at it and we grieve and we realize that that's how we love God. That worship in some strange way isn't even about music. That when we want to show God that we love Him and talk to Him, one of the primary ways Jesus gave us to do that is He said, he says, then don't talk to me. Go visit this person in jail. Help this hungry person. Help heal this sick person. And if you're doing that for even the least and lowly and smelly one of these people, you're doing it to me. You love me by loving them. You want to attribute worth to me? You want to worship me? Love them. So correct theology of poverty... um, comes out of understanding that it revolves around God and that we got to take Scripture seriously, truth seriously, Christ seriously, and set our sights right and be motivated right. And even if we can never eradicate poverty, we still run headlong after it because we love ministering to other people. So Christ-centered, authentic, inclusive, missional. We use four other words that kind of are synonym for these, and it's truth, beauty, meaning an adventure. And I hope that that last one there, that missional thing really would feel like an adventure that God has called us to, that we get to be a part of his work in this world. It's a calling that he has in our life. And to me, I look at that and think, man, if we can get it right, that it revolves around God, that it doesn't revolve around us and that we can do so much if we're rightly motivated and we can be in some sense a really amazing thing. I get excited and there's so much ahead of us. Let's pray. Father, um, we just would ask you to break us if that's what's needed. That we wouldn't have ourselves in the middle of everything that we're supposed to have you in the middle of or we're supposed to have other people in the middle of and and we sneak ourselves in and it's sly and it's subtle and we do it day after day and we're we're always one step away from becoming the pharisee and so i pray that you would just break us and that you would teach us and instruct us and love us and show us and and be patient with us and and, uh, and give us the ability of growing into Christ-likeness that we would know the joy of being able to have the right motives, being authentic, loving others more than we love ourselves, and doing unto others what we would do unto ourselves. And all the things you've prepared for us, Father, get us to that point where we can enjoy those things and, and we can just sense your smile of satisfaction. And we just commit the endeavors we've got to you, Um, purify us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.